Today, I sat down with the godfather of endurance training. And even if you're not an athlete, you'll get a lot out of this because we talked about career engagement, how to view aging, especially as an athlete, how to adapt to aging and coaching considerations. The first book I ever picked up on training as a cyclist was the Cyclist Training Bible back in 2003. And guess who it was by? Joe Friel. And he's been coaching a lot longer than that and has written many books since then. So today I bring you on a journey with 80-year-old endurance coach and athlete Joe Friel. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. You can be an athlete up until the very end, you're still an athlete, and you can do things that people probably in their 30s can't do anymore. I've seen that happen so many times that extremely old athletes, I'm, there's a guy that's 105 years old who broke the world's record for the hour on the track, he's a Frenchman. So it's, it's remarkable things you can do if you stay dedicated to it, and it's just pure fun, it's just something you enjoy doing. It's going to stay with you for a long, long time. And you're going to be very, very healthy all the way through your life. It's just amazing what you can do because of exercise. Joe is a paragon of staying engaged in the activities that bring joy and fulfillment in life. He's also a shining example of self-discipline. Joe is an active endurance sports coach, author, and a trailblazer in the realm of multi-sport coaching. From tackling the challenges of altitude training to the profound impact of lifestyle factors like sleep, diet, and maintaining a vibrant social life, Joe shares his wealth of experience. And as a national board certified health and wellness coach, where I focus on holistic health and performance, I was really excited to hear that he considers things like sleep, diet, social connections, and so much more because we aren't robots as athletes. We have to live a flourishing life. And that involves a lot more than just our sport. And when it comes to performance, it's not just about the hours that we log in our sport. It's everything else that we do to surround that. Joe has a master's degree in exercise science, and his journey began as a marathoner and running coach in the 1970s and 1980s. Transitioning to triathlon coaching in 1983, Joe became one of the pioneers of the discipline, establishing one of the first triathlon stores in the world. Leaving retail in 1987 to focus on coaching, Joe has coached athletes ranging from novices to professionals with a notable presence in the USA Triathlon Coaches Association, where he was a founding member. A prolific writer, Joe authored 17 books on training with the Triathletes Training Bible standing out as a worldwide bestseller. In 1999, Joe co-founded Training Peaks, an online training software for endurance athletes. And I've been using Training Peaks for many years, and I've even been on the Training Peaks podcast. So even though I had the godfather of endurance training, which is what I'm calling him, I didn't go into the nitty gritty nuts and bolts details of how to train because people have different interest levels in how to train, how to craft a training plan. And he has 17 books that he's written on it. So I will leave that to you. Instead, we talked about more meta topics. We talked about using coaching as a tool and how to find a good coach. We talked about aging, fitness, and adaptive training methods because 
Aging is one of the biggest questions that I get when it comes to this podcast. How do you age gracefully? How do I have realistic expectations that still bring me joy as I age as an athlete? And we even talk about how Joe is using e-bikes, which is a contentious topic among many, but I loved how he brought it up and how he is using an e-bike. In the show notes, we now have episode chapters, which I think is very exciting because I tend to go back and listen to some or parts of podcasts. And if you go to sonyaloney.com slash podcasts, most of the shows have a transcript. And Palm Tree Podco is my production company, along with my editor, Roma. And they do a fantastic job making sure that this podcast sounds good, but also that you're able to find information long after the fact of listening to the podcast. So some chapters today. Athletic training, aging, and staying engaged. Aging, exercise, diet, and sleep for athletes. We talked about sleep habits and their impact on athletic performance. We talked about the importance of coaching in athletic performance. We talked about self-regulation, and we also talked about the benefits of exercise and well-being in athletes, which is one of my favorite topics. Before we dive in, make sure that you share the podcast with a friend, as that is the best way to help it find others. And if you have a sec, just leave us a quick review online. Go over to your favorite podcast player. I know that it's hard to remember whenever we are probably out doing something while listening to a podcast, but if you happen to think of it, we would surely appreciate it or share on social media. All right, so let's dive right in with Joe Friel. Joe, we were having such a great conversation before I even turned on the mic and I realized that I should just probably turn it on and we can just keep talking. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to be on on your uh, on your podcast. I'm looking forward to it. And as, as I'm just saying to you, it's been a number of years since I actually coached any mountain bikers. But I wrote one book about mountain biking back in like '97 or '98, something like that. That book is no longer around. It's been a long, long time since I wrote that. However, I, I live in a little town, as we were talking about earlier, called Sedona, Arizona, which is like mountain bike heaven. It's we have something like 10,000 tourists a day in town, most of which are mountain bikers. So we have got mountain bikers all over the place here, riding trails and, and so forth. So it's a, it's a great place to live. What brought you to Sedona? Well, it's a long story. My, my wife and I used to live in Boulder, as I mentioned to you again earlier in our conversation, or you were also. And um, we decided we wanted to live in Arizona. We just got tired of the winters in, in Colorado. Some days it was difficult to get outside for a workout, a ride, whatever it may be. And so we started shopping around. This is like about 2001, decided to settle in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is down right next to Phoenix. And it turned out to be just the opposite there. It was so hot. Uh, you know, the high temperature average in the summer is 108 degrees. And that, that's the average. So we're getting temperatures 110, 112, 115 sometimes. And so we finally grew tired of that also. And so we've got, we got to find someplace in between. So we started shopping around and we started a, like a, a six state tour of cities we might like to live in. And the first one we went to was Sedona and we kind of liked it, but we went on to all the other cities we had on our list and decided we really liked Sedona the most. So we came back and, and bought a place here that was like about four or five years ago. And we've been there ever since. And uh, it's kind of like a low altitude boulder in some ways, or like 4,500 feet instead of 5,500 feet. but Beautiful scenery, great places to ride, and lots of athletes to to uh, pal around with. 
I'm just laughing because I lived at altitude my entire life. And then I moved to sea level about 10 years ago. And now when I come back and race in Colorado, we're just talking about the Breck Epic. It's I used to think that altitude, like, oh, people, it's not that big of a deal, uh, people coming from sea level. And now I truly understand. So I can see why the the allure of living at, at at altitude still and living in a beautiful place like Sedona. Yeah, it's it's a nice place. It's not, again, not quite a size boulder, but it's high enough that you get some benefit from it. You know, going back to your comment about going coming back to altitude, experiencing some difficulties and uh, com- <laughs> uh, dealing with it, you know, it's, it's probably the second hardest thing you got to deal with. Uh, that most most challenging thing you can deal with is heat. Second most challenging thing is altitude. And so when you get both of those things rolled together, like you go to Boulder in the summertime, for example, it's it's going to be extremely difficult. Be, you know, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, you're at 5,500 feet. We get a little bit warmer here, but not quite as high. So we've got just a little bit easier time than than that. But Breck is a great place to to race in the summertime. It, it, the weather's the heat is not that bad, but you got to deal with the altitude. It's pretty dang out, dang high out there. Yeah, like I've actually done a couple of podcasts on heat training, but I haven't really heard any good solutions on how to prepare for altitude when you live at sea level. So I actually wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, there really is no good way to do it. The only way to really do it is to go to altitude because your body's got to go through this adaptation period. Um, and there's lots of lots of research out there on the subject. And it kind of is you can buy, you can get these, you know, these um, altitude tents, for example. I've personally got my questions about whether or not they're as effective as actually being at altitude, but there may be some benefit to it, rather small, I, I would suspect. But the biggest thing now is with for elite athletes is to have um, altitude homes or at least altitude rooms within their home. And lots of national teams do this, like, the, for example, the Norwegian team as uh, an altitude home that their their athletes live in uh, as they prepare for a big race like the Olympics or something. And so that's kind of the trend right now. But some countries have actually declared that to be illegal, like like it's banned in some countries, which is strange, but not very many. And I've forgotten the countries off the top of my head, but there's just a few countries who have banned living in uh, artificial altitudes as a way of preparing for competition. So it's kind of a debatable topic, I guess, also at the same time. But bottom line is you got to go there to get the most benefits from it. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. How have you stayed professionally engaged in coaching and writing? Because can you tell us how old you are? Uh, My 80th birthday was just last week. Um, Happy birthday. So so I'm pretty much over the hill now. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um, Maybe. But yeah, so how have you stayed engaged after all these years? Oh, it's just something I've always done. I started doing this when I was like 12 years old, all this stuff I'm doing. I, I was a runner at first. This is a long, long time ago. And uh, I found that sport to me was the most enjoyable thing in my life. And so I did everything I could in, in high school, college to stay involved in teams. Track and field, for example, was one of my favorites. Uh, and when I was in off season, for whatever reason, I trained on my own. Nobody else did that. I was the only weirdo in the entire college, I think. I'd go out and run and and do all kinds of weight lifting. I started weightlifting back in, you know, when I was in college and still do it to this day. So I started doing this stuff at a very young age when nobody else did it. Everybody else thought I was kind of strange because I wanted to do these things, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it's never it's never left me. Um I was in Vietnam during the war, then the Air Force, and I continued to work out there. I was running 
doing whatever I could to stay active. And uh, so it's just always been that way. No matter where I've been in my in my world, I've always tried to figure out a way to make sure I can do what I enjoy doing, which is working out. Yeah. Well, number one, thanks for your service. And number two, it sounds like being an athlete is such a core part of who you are that it, it isn't even necessarily a challenge to stay engaged with that because it's who you are. No, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's like I always talk about it as being like brushing my teeth. I just don't think anything about it. I just go do it. And, you know, when we're done talking here today, I'll go out for a ride. And uh, I, I rode yesterday and lifted weights and did some cross training with my wife. And so I just enjoy, it's, it's just fun for me. I, I enjoy it. I can't imagine ever stopping, but there'll be some point in time where the end comes and that's going to be the last of it. But it'll be good. It's a good example of this. I just had a friend pass away about four months ago. He was 92 years old. He owned the um, record for the uh, 75-year-old plus at Ironman Hawaii and continued been racing there every year for as long as I knew him, which is something like 20 years. He was always at Ironman. And he finally passed away at age 92 a few months ago. The day he died, he went for a run and a bike ride. And he died later that day. And I always, that, that for me is how I see me coming to my end. I, I want to go out having just done my uh, workout and uh, still enjoying life. And that's, and that's the end of it. I don't want to lay in a hospital bed for six months, dying slowly over nothing. I want to have it come suddenly like that. Having finished very, very actively, like my friend did. I'm, I'm sure if I could talk to him now, he'd tell me how happy he was to be able to end it that way, knowing that he's, he was so much like me that we had a lot in common. Great guy. Anyway, yeah, he's gone and I, I miss him, but uh, nevertheless, he went out um, in the way I'd like to go. Yeah, I'm sorry about your friend. And also, what a great example for you and for all of us to follow. I think that with aging, a lot of people have a negative view of aging. Like even people lie about their age. They do all these crazy things to try to pretend like they're not aging because of this image of what aging looks like. And you're somebody that is setting an example that aging doesn't have to mean that you stop doing the things that you love, that you can't use your body anymore. And a lot of people have pain, like their joints hurt, their knee hurt, like whatever, all these things start hurting. So how have you actually, or what advice do you have for aging athletes to address some of these aches and pains that come up that stop them from moving? Yeah, there's there's three things. I, I'm a strong, but maybe four things, actually. The fourth one is not quite as strong as the first three. Number one is exercise daily. You've, you've got to be active. You've got to do it like my friend, right up until you can no longer do it. You've got to be very, very active all your life. And it's, and it's got to be fun. If it's not fun, it's, it's really you don't want to have to whip yourself to go outside to do something like go for a run or whatever it may be. But you, it's got to be enjoyable. You've got to enjoy it. That's number one on the list. If you do that, that's the biggest thing of all the things I'm going to talk about. That's the biggest one. That's the one that will give you the most health span. You'll be healthy for a very, very long time if you do that. Second thing is your diet, what you eat. I've, I've been very concerned with my diet my entire life. Uh, I've always watched what I put in my mouth because I realized it had a lot to do with how I performed when I was racing. So I was always very concerned about that. And I happened to be married to a woman who has exactly the same attitude. So she she's a great cook and she prepares the meals. My job is to wash the dishes. Her job is to get the, the meal ready. So we've got to be share the burden of, of the meal. But 
you know, she's got, she shares that same concern I have. So I, I always watch carefully what I, what I put in my mouth. It doesn't mean I never eat something out of the ordinary. Like we just went past Christmas. Well, I was given, I'm always given a box of chocolates for Christmas by somebody. And so I'm still nibbling away on those and they'll probably last another week before they're gone. But it's a little bit of chocolate's okay. It's just, I don't want to eat chocolate all day long though. That's the second thing. Third thing is sleep, which is what most athletes do not get enough of in our society. They may exercise great and have a great diet, but they don't get enough sleep. And that's really a very strong key to how well you hold out in life, how long your life is, how healthy you are. It's how much sleep you get every night. I won't go into all the details there, but that's one of the things that I always ask athletes when they ask me to coach them is to tell me about your, your sleep habits and how that goes. And if they have terrible sleep habits, I really don't want to coach them. That It's going to be a waste of time. Uh, good sleep habits not only make you a better athlete, they help you to live longer and be, and be healthy in the process. And the fourth thing, which is probably down the list quite a ways from the others, what I, which I've been reading a lot about in the last oh, several months, I suppose, is sociability, just being around other people. Uh, and that you know works out with things like having training partners, people you go for, for rides with or runs with, whatever you do, or people you meet for supper or whatever it may be, just having somebody in your life that you can you can um, be sociable with has been shown to also improve your your health span and your lifespan. And I'm sure there's a longer list than that, but I'm not, that, that's that's enough things right there to talk about. Those those are, seem to me to be to be the big four in terms of uh, health span and lifespan. Yeah, and I think that something that's really interesting about this list that I 100% agree with. I, I'm a, also a health and wellness coach, a mental performance coach, so these are things that I talk about all the time. Is that you don't see like VO2 max training or you know zone two training, which you need you need to do all these different things, but these things are the fundamentals. And without these fundamentals, whenever you add on all of the structure training, it, it might not actually be as beneficial as you think it's going to be. Yeah. These things all have to be taken in context. They're every everything that goes into your training is a picture is is one piece in a big puzzle. And you can't have all the same pieces. It takes a lot of these pieces to to be successful in sport. For example, you mentioned intensity training, like zone two and so forth. Zone two is beneficial. There's no problem with that. But zone one is also beneficial, and zone four is beneficial, and so forth. So they've all got benefits. It just it's, it's a matter of using the right one at the right time is what it's all about. And unfortunately, that's where most self-coached athletes fall down is they they think the key is to always be zone four, zone five, zone six, <laughs> zone seven, zone eight, whatever they do that's the highest, that's what they got to be at. And they tend to disregard the lower intensity zones. So that if if you can learn to do that and you're already doing the high intensity stuff, you've got it made. But if you've you ignore the low intensity stuff in favor of always doing high intensity, you're never going to be a good athlete. It just doesn't happen that way. I'm laughing because there's lots of times people want to go out for a ride with me and they ride as hard as they possibly can. And I have to ask them, why are you riding so hard? Like, we don't, I don't want to ride this hard. <laughs> I hear you. So I want yeah, to I talk about sleep really quick. A lot of times, a lot of athletes listening to this are time crunched. They are working full-time jobs. They have kids. They have to squeeze in the training wherever they can. And a lot of times that might mean giving up sleep to wake up early in the morning to squeeze in a workout. So how do you balance the time issue versus the sleep issue to make time with those early morning training sessions? Yeah, one of the things I always I mentioned a while ago when I was, when I, somebody wants me to coach them, 
I have a series of questions I go through. And one of the questions is, tell me about your lifestyle. And what I'm what I'm really paying attention to is how many things they have going on in their life during the day. Now, when they get done, and I found out they've got like a half a dozen things they got to get done every day, and they've got to cram it all in, including their workouts, whatever that may be, workout or workouts. It could be multiples and something like triathletes are really bad at this. But when they get through with all that, and uh, I've, I'm basically shaking my head saying that it's not going to work. You know, you can't have all that stuff in your life because something's got to give. And what's going to give is sleep. You're going to cut back on sleep in order to get more stuff in. So I, I tell athletes, you can really only have three things in your life. You can have your family. We're not going to do away with that. You can have your career. That's important to you also. And you can have training, but nothing else. You can't volunteer to be on the HOA for your house, for wherever you live, your, your neighborhood. You can't decide to take up golf. You can't, there's, you, there's a whole long list of things you just can't do if you have a high goal and you really want to achieve that goal. Because the only way you can do that is sleep. You've got to get at least seven hours of sleep a night. Everybody's got to get at least seven hours of sleep a night. Some need more than that. I won't get into all the details on this, but you've got to get to sleep. And if, if you're cutting back on sleep in order to fit everything in, something else in, then, then that's a problem. And either I can't coach you or else you've got to figure out what we're going to leave out. And I hate to say it to people, but that's just the way it is. You know, if you, you want to qualify for the national championship in whatever your sport may be, or you want to go to Ironman Hawaii or whatever it is you want to accomplish at this really high goal, we have got to figure out a way to get at least seven hours of sleep every night and we'll figure it out. You may not like it, but that's what's necessary to do it because that's what happens. Workout does not create fitness. The workout only creates potential for fitness. The fitness isn't realized until you sleep. Now is when you begin to realize the benefits of that workout you did today. That's when all the hormones are released. and They're released in waves all night long, like 90-minute waves that go on all night. So if you cut it back to six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep, you, you give up at least one of those waves during the night. That meant you give up some of the hormones that go into rebuilding muscles and making you more fit. So it's uh, the key to this really is finding the coach. If you're really not very good at coaching yourself, if you make bad decisions, like, for example, doing things when you've already got too much in your life to begin with, then you need to hire a coach. The coach is a, is a solution to your, to your problems to get things back on track again and perform at a high level. Yeah, I love that you actually brought this up because I think that in our um, culture, it's always about adding in more. Like I need to do everything and I'm going to add everything in and try to be good at everything. And yeah. the reality is that 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 doesn't work. Um, so you have to choose what's your priority. And like, how do you help athletes do that? Because if they have to subtract something in order to make time for sleep and training, you know, how do they make these decisions on what to cut out? I don't know. I, I can't. I can't answer that question because it's their life, not mine. Uh -huh. but, some, but somehow we've got to figure out what the problem is and get to the root of it, so we can start getting more sleep. If we can't figure that out, then really, I, I just can't do it for you. I'm, I'm not a. You know, I'm not. I'm not in psychology. I'm not in uh, sleep behavioral uh, science. I'm. I'm a coach, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not that smart. I, I'm not really sure how to do all these things. So the athletes got to figure it out. I can be there to help them but they've got to make the decision themselves. So you mentioned coaching. 
out there on your website and other places, you can get training plans or you can work individually with a coach. What are the benefits of having a training plan that's more of just like a, a generic training plan versus working with a coach? Yeah, working with a coach is a thousand times better. That coming from a person who writes training plans, you have to decide who you're writing the training plan for. So it, it, it may not be you. In fact, it probably isn't you. It's probably some amalgamation of, of various people, different athletes, there are various athletes based on all kinds of variables, age, time, how long they've been in the sport, how good they are, how they've trained in the past, uh, how, how they react to training. And all these things are, are sorts of things that really need to be taken into consideration when you're actually writing a plan for a given athlete. If you write a generalized plan that people can purchase, you're getting somewhat of a much lesser type of plan than what you would get if you had actually had somebody do that for you and personalized it. So what, what that comes down to is, is, the, is the athlete has to be their own coach. They've got to make a decision when the plan says do X today. And, and the athlete has to look at X and decide, if, is this right for me? So the athlete has to now become their own coach. And I found that most self-coached athletes are, don't do a very good job. They, all, they invariably make wrong decisions, almost always in favor of ma making things harder than they need to be. And so consequently, there's a good chance they're just not going to perform very well, although a, a generic plan is probably better than the athlete not having a generic plan and trying to come up with everything for themselves. That's why I wrote the books I've written about how to go about coaching yourself is to help you figure out how to do that. But it's not, it's not as easy as it looks like. It's not just go out and do as hard as you can every day. That's not the way you do it. There's all kinds of things going on here. That's why I can write, you know, 70,000 words about how to coach yourself because it's a complex topic. It's, it's not a simple topic. So the best solution is find a way to hire a coach. That is the bottom line to becoming a better athlete at all levels. I don't care what the level is, hire a coach. How can people discern what a good coach is? I'll give an example. I've had multiple coaches across my career. I've been a, a pro mountain biker. I don't even know, 15 years or something like that, maybe more. Um, but a lot of times when I've worked with coaches, they've actually overtrained me. So I find that I perform best when I don't have a coach because inevitably I get overtrained when I work with a coach. So like, how, did, how, how would I deal with that? And how could somebody else who's like trying to find a coach, find a good coach that's a, a good fit for them? It takes me back to an athlete who contacted me a long time ago, a road biker woman, and she said that uh, she wondered if I would coach her. And so I'm trying to, whenever somebody says that to me, I want to find out why. And what she told me was she just she just fired her coach because he would have her do, she either did one of two things every day, either do a very, very hard workout or take the day off. Those are the only two options. And so she felt like she was overtrained and undertrained all at the same time because she was doing these extremely hard workouts. And the next day she was totally off, didn't ride her bike at all. And so she finally gave up on that. And, and you, you can find those types of coaches. They're, they're few and far between anymore. They used to be much more numerous than they are today. We've got a lot more things going on in the world now within sport that gets coaches on the right uh, keel to be doing the right things with their athletes. But there, you'll still find coaches out there who – don't do a very good job with their athlete. Some coaches think their job is to entertain the athlete by giving them hard workouts and making them sweat and, and say, boy, that was hard. And coach thinks that's exactly what I want that athlete to do is feel like it was hard. 
But that's really not the way it is. The good coach knows that the key really here is to keep things as easy as we can down to the level of whatever this athlete's unique needs are. That's the key. I had an athlete write me two days ago. He just read my cyclist training Bible. And he's in his first year in the sport. And he said he came across a sentence in my book where it said, if you were new to the sport, you shouldn't do any high-intensity interval training. Stay away from that for a couple of years. And he wanted to know if that was really true. Would I change my mind on that for him? And I said, absolutely not. That if I was your coach, you would not be doing any high-intensity interval training. I would have you doing lots and lots of low-intensity training to build your aerobic base. You can still go do races occasionally. I wouldn't expect you to be any kind of a great cyclist at this point. But that's, but it's a process you have to go through to become a cyclist. Nobody started out being a cyclist. Everybody started out being a poor cyclist, or <laughs> was, and they, had, and they had to learn to become a better cyclist uh, along the way. And so, but the last thing I said to him was, I know as, an, as a self-coached athlete, you'll pay absolutely no attention to what I'm saying. You'll go out and do it anyway. Good luck. <laughs> but that's just the way athletes are. They do not. They do not. They're, they're unwilling to say, I'm going to do a hard, an easy workout. They they give in. All, all it takes is one person to come along and join them, and all of a sudden it becomes a race. That's just the way it always is with everybody in, in any endurance sport I've ever found. I don't care what the sport is. Second person joins up, and all of a sudden the intensity becomes a race. So you've got to figure out how to how to control yourself. What I used to tell people when I was coaching them is if that happens to you, you're riding along, and somebody comes up beside you, and all of a sudden you can feel it becoming a race. At the next point, you come to a turn of some kind of intersection, make a turn and get away from this person. Go back to your workout again. Do not ride with other people who want to make it a race. You've got to make it easy when it calls for easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, self-regulation seems like a foundational skill when it comes to everything that you're talking about, like going to bed at the right time, like not eating the foods that you know may be harmful for you, eating the good foods, being social, not racing people when you're out on an easy ride. like. Self-regulation is such, um, it's important, but it's also challenging. Do you actually speak about self-regulation as a skill with athletes? Well, skill is kind of a vague word, I suppose, which is kind of like a talent. It's kind of like something that's embedded in the athlete. All of us who become athletes all suffer from the same problem. This is not unique to certain people. The mere fact that we want to be an athlete and we want to compete takes us to that level where we've got to make decisions about what we're going to do every day. And that always is lurking in the back of my mind. I want to compete. I want to be, I want to be fast. I want to race well. I want to be on a podium, whatever it may be. And we see the solution to that problem is being hard workouts. So it's kind of like an intuitive thing that we have built into us that to compete means to work out hard. And unfortunately, that's not the way it is. You, you can look at any of the best athletes in the world in endurance sports. I don't care what sport is. Any of the best endurance sport athletes in the world, and they don't they don't train that way. They don't go out every day and beat themselves into the ground by going as hard as they can. They have days in there that are very easy. In fact, they have more easy days than they have hard days. But you know, self-coached athletes are unwilling to accept that as the way it is. They just they just don't accept it. But I think it's just a part of our nature as human beings when we say we want to excel that means work out hard. Therefore, every day I need to work out hard. That's kind of the way they see it. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. That, that's why having a coach solves that problem. The coach is not going to let you do that. At least a good coach won't. 
the good coach won't let you do that. And they'll have something drawn up for you, which really gives you lots of time to recover and business and come back at the right time. It's appropriate to do a hard work, not, not day after day after day after day. Yeah, one of my coaching clients is actually, I think this would be a good conversation. He's an amateur athlete. And he, at first, he thought, I shouldn't get a coach because who am I to get a coach? I'm not a pro. And then, second of all, we started talking about him having a coach. And it was something we talked about, like how coaches actually, their job for a lot of people is to hold their athletes back from doing too much. So, can you help us? Can you talk about the amateur athletes getting coaches? Because I think a lot of amateur athletes think they, they shouldn't have a coach. They don't deserve a coach. But I, I think that a lot of amateur athletes really benefit from a coach. Yeah, that, that, that notion, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm really not in a position. I'm not qualified, if you will, to be a, to have a coach. That goes back a long ways. I started coaching back in the 1970s and I can recall, you know, I was the only coach around. I was the only one, as far as I knew, in the United States in those days, I was, I was, you know, a freelance coach. All, all the other coaches worked for clubs or universities or schools or something. And I was freelance and that was unusual. And, um, Gosh, it, it was the same problem back then. They people said, you know, I, I can't, I, you know, I don't really want a coach because I'm not, I'm not that good. It's for pros, the ones who don't have a coach, and that's not the way it is at all. Um, but even pros back in those days said the same thing. They didn't want coaches either. This is a long, long time ago. Now, now you don't. You've, it's rare to find a coach, an athlete rather, who doesn't have a coach. That, that's extremely rare for a professional athlete, an elite athlete. That's almost always the case that they have a coach. But that that's, you know, that I can guarantee you, guarantee any athlete, if you hire a coach and you do a good job of finding a good coach, that coach will produce a better athlete out of you than than anybody else, than, than you could for yourself. You'll do much better. You'll perform much better if you do that. And, you know, and, and that's it, it's a thousand times better than buying a training plan to have a real coach. And some coaches don't charge nearly enough. This is when I talk to coaches, and this is the, the conversation I have with them. You don't charge enough. The stuff you're doing for people is really beneficial and has a lot to do with their self perceptions and how they how they do in life and how they perform and all this. And yet you charge next to nothing. You know, it's like you're it's like you're giving your services away. So that I can guarantee an athlete if they look around, they can find somebody who's dirt cheap. Who knows a lot about how to coach people? Is that going to be as good as somebody that you pay a lot of money to? I don't know. It depends on on. There's so many variables here. I can't answer that question, but but I'm sure you can find somebody who's inexpensive, who can help you become a better athlete than you would on your own, and uh, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money to do it. What is a price somebody should expect to pay? You know, you like. Of course, there's going to be coaches that don't charge very much that are amazing. There's going to be coaches that charge a lot that aren't amazing. But what is something, what's like a cost somebody should arrange somebody yeah. should pay? Something like what I see like on, on training peaks, for example, it really comes down to how much services are is the is the coach offering. Uh, a coach you ask offers very little service. You know, I, for example, I, I just interview you. And from the interview, I write a 12-week training plan. And then you're on your own from that point forward. That is something like in the neighborhood of maybe $100 to $200 for most people I've seen doing that sort of plan for maybe a 12-week plan for $200. So that's really not very expensive. The next stage up is usually the, the athlete and the coach have some sort of common time when they contact each other. 
It could be as infrequently as once a month. It could be once a week. Uh, it really depends on on what the coach offers. And the price goes up a little bit from that, more like something like about $200 to $300 for that price range for having somebody who contacts you on a regular basis, but not, not real regularly, not daily, which is the highest level when the coach is is contacting the athlete on, on a daily basis, reviewing the athlete's training log every day, their diary, reviewing it, getting back to the athlete, perhaps on, on the internet, uh, social services or social media, whatever, about um, how their training is going, asking questions, and then talking to the athlete, maybe via Zoom, which is very co- common anymore, once a week. Now we're talking somewhere more like in the lines, along the lines of 300 to $500 or even more. I've known coaches who, are, who charge well over $1,000 for their services, but they, they give great services. They're always right there for the athlete, always dealing with their issues on a almost moment-to-moment basis throughout the day. They're paying close attention to what that athlete's needs are. So this, there's this broad spectrum of what you can pay to get coaching from $100, $150 up to $1,000 or more dollars per month. So shop around. You can probably find somebody that fits into your into your budget. Thanks. Yeah, a lot of times people don't talk about what people charge. So I think that I think that's a really good place for people to start. And I'm intentionally not asking you a lot of deep questions about cycling training because actually a lot of listeners, a lot of them are interested in endurance sports, but some of them aren't endurance athletes at all that are interested in becoming them. So I'm I'm trying to tailor this interview so it's useful for everybody. Sure. I understand. So I actually want to ask you about um you have a you had a new book the or is it a new edition of the triathletes training bible that came out? You also yeah. have the cyclist training bible like you have all these amazing books about how to integrate endurance sports and how to train endurance sports. How should people differentiate like if somebody is a runner and a cyclist or a triathlete or only a cyclist like how does that change how somebody trains? Yeah, well it changes a lot actually. The starting point you know, if, if the athlete's going to be self-coached, they really do need to read, do some reading, do some studying on how to coach themselves. If you're going to hire a coach, you really don't need to do that. that that's the coach's job. But, but having some knowledge is never going to hurt you. So reading books, my books or somebody else's, there are lots of good books out there about how to train for various sports. And uh, the benefit, I think, is that it causes the athlete to to think about what they're doing in training. Uh, what I try to do with my training Bible books, for example, is walk the athlete through the process from step one through all the steps that go in to be to being self-coached. And finally, by the time they're done, they should be able to write a training plan for themselves and then be able to incorporate that training plan into their into their training. And that is not foolproof. Uh, lots of athletes still don't believe they should do the things that the author says in the book which is okay because sort of people are different in some regards. So I certainly understand that, but you've got to, you've got to some point decide that you need to make some changes. Otherwise you're just doing the same thing you've been doing all along, which has not been successful for you. You know, this is a time to, to, to do some training. The difference between the coach and the athlete in this case is the coach has been doing this reading, this training for years, perhaps decades may have a degree uh, that's related to coaching. Like, physical education or sports science or physiology or whatever it may be. And um, uh, and has coached lots of people over the years. So has lots of stuff to draw upon as a source of, of information. 
the athlete typically doesn't have these things. And so the, the athlete's going to start out, and I've known people do this, start out by trying to become more informed so they can become a better coach. I know a guy who started out doing that back in uh, the year 2000. He came to me as an overweight uh, sort of guy who wanted to become a triathlete, and but he was very inquisitive, came, flew in from a foreign country to spend a weekend with me just to talk to me about training because he wanted to learn as much as he could. Now, then he went on, I'll come back to now in just a little bit. Then he went on to become a professional triathlete, won lots of races, became one of the best at ultra endurance racing in the world, ultra endurance triathlons, which go on for days, tremendous athlete. And now then, then he became a coach. Uh, now he's highly regarded on, on social media because his background as a, as a coach and as a pro athlete. But this is a guy who did exactly what I just talked about. He decided he wanted to become smarter, so he trained himself. He, he began. He read and listened to and watched and talked with everybody he possibly could. And now I consider him one of the top coaches in the country in the field of triathlon. So anybody can do it, but it's taken him more than 20 years to do it. That's what you get when you hire a coach is you get all this knowledge that's already there as, as a form to, instead of going to buying a book and trying to figure it out for yourself. Not that I don't, don't want people to buy my books, but that's <laughs> that's just the way the world is. You're always going to do better with somebody's experience and know what they're doing rather than trying to figure it out from yourself unless you're willing to spend 20 years trying to figure it out. But by that time, you may be over, your, over the hump and it's not really making make much difference anymore. Yeah, I think that reading books is and having a coach is helpful because if you read the book and you have a background, then you know better informed questions to even ask your coach around your training. I certainly agree. I always enjoy coaching athletes who are smart, who have done the, the research, who have tried to understand all they can about the sport. It is so much fun to talk with them. You can you can kind of help guide them and where they want to be going with their with their training, with their performance. But there you know they're they are enthusiastic, they're dedicated, uh, and they're informed. And that that for me is like it's like it's like so much fun to talk with an athlete who comes to me like that. Somebody who comes to me doesn't know anything and thinks they can coach themselves is kind of like, gosh, you wish you wish you could do something to help this person, but as long as they're willing, not willing to to learn or to even have a coach to help them do it, they're kind of like stuck with their current level of performance is not going to make much change for them. So the informed athlete for me, I find to be tremendously enjoyable to talk with and, and to uh, share ideas with. So whenever you have a cyclist or a runner or a swimmer, they have a narrow focus on their training and they might do some cross training in the off season, but they're primarily going to be doing the reps in their sport versus multi-sport where you're going to be doing lots, three different sports or maybe two different sports. So how does your training change whenever you start adding in different sports? Yeah, it really becomes very complicated. <laughs> the triathlete's training Bible was a real challenge to write compared to the cyclist's training Bible, just because there are so many sports there that we're trying to balance. That's not easy. Trying to get all these sports balanced in a person's life with all the stuff they already got in their lives, their, their job, their family, and so forth, whatever it is they have in their lives, and then try to fit in three more sports or two more sports on top of that is really more than a lot of people can actually deal with. It's just it's just way too challenging to deal with. So, the, the, again, the key there is to find somebody who knows what they're doing and hire that person to coach you. 
that's always that's always a bottom line answer to how you deal with problems when you're an athlete. But the bottom line is the athlete, if they want to self-coach, has to learn what they're doing. Uh, they have to be willing to, as my friend did over 20 years, uh, pay attention to what other people are saying, ask questions, uh, read as much as you can, and so forth. That's the only way you can do it. He's no longer a pro athlete now. He's like he's like in his 40s now, late 40s, I believe. But that's the way it is. You know, if you it takes years and years and years to become well informed, and you you move beyond your the precipice of your physical performance, and by the time you finally know what you should do, it's too late. Uh, so the best the best solution there is just to hire a coach. How should athletes change their expectations as they get older? Because a lot of times they'll think about, they'll compare themselves back to the best they ever were. And if an athlete wants to continue racing throughout the duration of their life, they have to change their expectations and, and, and even their approach to racing and training. So how, how do you help people work with that? Yeah. Tell me about it. I've been there a number (laughs) of times. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I wrote a book that talks about this somewhat. It's called fast after 50 and it's about, what I've learned and what I've read on the subject of aging athletes and how they can go about um, performing at a at a high level. But one of the things they have to give up on is feeling that they can somehow maintain their performance levels for the rest of their lives. It doesn't happen that way. There's always going to be changes taking place. And the first time we notice that typically is around late 30s, early 40s people begin to notice that something has changed. I'm not quite as, I perform quite as well as I, as I did just five or six years ago. And that's the first sign that something's happening. And what they're experiencing there is very common. It's that's when your VO2 max somewhere around the early thirties, aerobic capacity begins to go South, not real fast, but is going down even for elite athletes. It's starting to go down, and uh, it kind of is scary for the athlete. But but sometimes it doesn't show up until the because they uh, they they become so smart by the time they're in their mid thirties that they understand how to train and they understand how to race, and because of that, their smarts get them through this loss of aerobic capacity they're experiencing, and they still perform at a high level. So they think this is going to keep on going like that for the rest of their lives, but it's not. Around age, early 40s, that begins to wither a little bit. And now we've, we've got very few people after the age of 40 who wind up still being elite athletes. It's extremely rare who was it won the uh, Tour de France and their four, uh, Vuelta a España when he was 40 years old. I, I can't come up with his name off the top of my head. But uh, he was 40, won the, won the belt. This is like four or five years ago. I'll think of his name probably later on. But uh, he's, he's an example of what this happened. That was his last race. He, he, that's the pinnacle of his career. From that point, it went downhill fast. And then he became an announcer on TV during Tour de France, Vuelta, and so forth. So he, you know, he, he became, a, became an extremely good athlete and, and all of a sudden began to lose it. That's very common. When you get older, this this VO, I want to talk about VO2 max. There are other indicators of fitness also. VO2 max is easy, probably one of the more common things that people know about aerobic capacity. But if you stay active all your life, I mean active meaning you train like an athlete, 
If you do that all your life, you'll lose your VO2 max at a rate of something like about 7% per decade. So about 0.7 per, not very much. You never feel that per year. Per decade, you'll, if you quit exercising altogether, it's become a lounge uh, lizard. Then you're probably talking about losing it some, somewhere at the rate of about 15% per year. So one and a half percent, I'm sorry, 15% per decade. It's about one and a half percent per year. Now, because much more recognizable, every couple of years, you realize walking around the block is becoming difficult when you're like at age 55 or something where it wasn't difficult five years before. So it's little things like that. And in between, you got somebody who decides not to compete anymore, but they also don't want to just stop altogether. They want to do a little bit. They want to become like joggers, for example, a little bit of fitness jogging every three, three days out of a week or whatever. There's some place in between those. They'll maintain their VO2 max at a relatively acceptable level, more like around 10%, 11%, 12%. They'll, they'll experience a loss per decade. So, yeah, and there's been several studies on this, longitudinal studies, which have been shown this to be the case that if you stay active, your loss of VO2 max and the other markers of fitness will go down at a very slow rate over the course of your life. My friend who died at 92... I have no idea what his VO2 max was, but the guy is still going out for runs and bike rides in his 90s. He was doing great. You know, he had been an athlete all his life. And that's what happens. You can you can be a, an athlete right up until the very end. You're still an athlete. And you can do things that people probably in their 30s can't do anymore. I've, known, I've seen that happen so many times that extremely old athletes. I'm, there's a guy that's 105 years old who broke the world's record for the hour on the track. He's a French Frenchman. This is a few years ago. He rode the, he wrote his one hour on the track. He did 17 miles. It was 27 something kilometers. It was 17 miles. He did basically on the track age 105 in an hour. That that's, you know, for 105, that's, that's really 13 miles an hour for 105 years old. And the guy lived us 109 and he was still doing bike rides every day at age right up until he died at 109. So it's it's remarkable things you can do if you stay dedicated to it, and it's, and it's just pure fun. It's just something you enjoy doing. It's going to stay with you for a long, long time, and you're going to be very, very healthy all the way through your life. It's just amazing what you can do because of exercise. Yeah, this is why I'm so passionate about the mental side of sport. And you mentioned the number one thing is enjoyment, and there are so many different things that are tricks our mind can play on us or things that can happen that take the enjoyment away, putting too much pressure on yourself, having too high of an expectation, thinking that, well, it has to be a two hour ride. And if it's not a two hour ride, that's not even worth going out in the first place or worrying too much about what other people are going to think of your results. Like there's, there's an endless list of things that can take enjoyment out of the sport and thinking about why you started in the first place. Like a lot of us get into it because we were just interested and it's fun. And then we complicate it with all of these other things. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I used to, sometimes I'd give an athlete a workout and uh, it's supposed to be an easy workout, like go for an easy run. And I said, if that embarrasses you, put a paper bag over your head. Uh, so people, <laughs> people don't know who you are. Some, <laughs> just some guy with a paper bag on his head out running some that. <laughs> Uh, but you know that that it comes to the the core of who we are. We don't want to be embarrassed because of going too slow. I can remember when I was coaching athletes who were who were pros. Uh, I would occasionally go for workouts with them, 
Uh, one I remember vividly was a, I coached a triathlete who was in the Olympics in 2000. And I used to occasionally go for workouts with him. And, uh, uh, you know, I, at the time I was like probably what around uh, late 50s, 60 years old, right around there. And, uh, you know, this is this guy's he's he's good. He's an elite athlete. He's qualified for the Olympics. And uh, I can recall running with him and he had to slow down for me. I could not speed up to stay with him. He had to slow down for me. And I was I, and this became very important because I wanted to watch him to see what happens when he slows down. Does he does his form break down? And then the answer is no. He he what he but I realized he began to make changes in his in his running technique to run at my speed that was something different than what he did when he was running by himself. And the change he made was he he shortened his stride, he didn't change his cadence, his cadence stayed the same. He still ran at like 90 RPMs, but now his stride got much shorter. And when I see aging athletes who I tell them to go out for a run, for example, and I get to watch them uh, and they're running slow. What I see them do is they change their cadence. They don't change their length. So they become these gallopers when they're trying to run real slow. And that, that, that stood out for me as something I'd learned from this one athlete. And I began to see it in other athletes along the same line that when they went really slow, they always change cadence. They never change stride length. They change stride length. They never change cadence. And so that was the unique thing I learned from that one athlete that we all experience as we get older. And that's happened to me. You know, I, I, I don't run to the same stride length and cadence I used to run with. They're now different. The cadence has stayed much the same, but the stride length has changed significantly over the years. And that's, that's just the way life is. We're going to see these things change as we get older. Yeah, this is interesting for me to hear about because last year I I, I actually train on my bike now about fifty percent, and I do fifty percent of the hours, and then fifty percent of the hours are spent trail running, Good because you. I wanted to try adding in a different sport and having different adventures because I've done so much racing over the years. So it's it's fun because I'm learning about how to be a runner, which is a completely yeah. different thing, and even like stride length and what you said about changing your stride instead of changing or changing your cadence instead of changing your stride. Like these are all really interesting things. Yeah. I'm interested. I'm writing a book right now for road cyclists primarily, but it includes mountain bikers along the way. And um, one of the things I suggest in there is that they do a lot of cross training in the early times. Training is running, hiking, walking on perhaps snowshoeing, skiing, Nordic skiing, doing things that they don't normally do uh, because it's going to benefit you in the long run. You'll you'll become a better athlete because of this in many ways. Part of it is physiological. We're going to make some changes in the way your body responds to training. We're going to build a better aerobic base. But, in this. but there's also a psychological point, which is that we're going to do something different altogether than what we normally do. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of and later on, we're going to get away from that, go back to riding a bike all the time, whatever it may be. But in the meantime, I get ready to do, I get to do two sports or three sports or whatever it is. You know, I can do several different things during the day just for variety. And variety is very, very good for us. You begin to cut back on variety the closer you get to the race, but it's fun to have at some time in the season. Yeah, um, there's something called psychological richness, which is one of the things for well-being, and and one of one element of psychological ri- richness is novelty. So for athletes, especially ones who have been at it for a long time, adding in some novelty can actually prolong your longevity in the sport because it makes it 
fun and, and curious and intriguing to go out there and say, well, I don't know how to run like a really steep rock slab. Like I have to learn this new skill again. Or what are these running shoes? Like I, I know all the different cycling shoes, but I don't know these running shoes and it's really fun. So I encourage people to try new things that are piquing your interest. But it can be hard when you've been so set in your ways for so many years. I have to do it this way. Otherwise, my performance is going to decline. Yeah. And my son is a good example of this. You, you, you know my son, Dirk. Most people do him this because of Turning Peaks. But back in the um, late 80s and 90s into the early 2000s, he was a pro cyclist, raced in Europe for a few years, a road cyclist, and uh, continued a road race until oh, sometime in the mid-2000s late 2000s, I forget exactly when. And then he decided to take up another sport. So he took up took up ski mountaineering, which is a unique sport. He took up mountain biking, which is different also from being a road cyclist. And uh, now he trains in, in three different sports. So he's running, he's skiing, he's uh, he does lots of stuff uh, on a daily basis. And he was just here with my family for the, for the Christmas vacation. And his daughter came along, who's having her 21st birthday here in like about uh, a week, I think. And um, so he took her for a workout and he was taking her through all the stuff that he does, you know, cross training sort of stuff, lifting weights and running and all this stuff, trying to to get her to think along the same lines of the way he thinks is that you got to have variety in your life to really enjoy it just for a run. But he throws his weights for a minute and comes back with weights for a minute and go for 10 minutes. And this kept her very, very active for about an hour like that. And uh, he kind of epitomizes this idea of uh, a variety is, is good for an athlete. Uh, something I wanted to bring up right before, before we have to hop off, but I think this is a special thing to say or an important thing to say is that you mentioned put a paper bag over your head if you're embarrassed because you're going so slow. And this is something that I'm focusing on in my master's degree is we think that we are only worthy or special if we are fast or highly accomplished at all moments in time. And a lot of people have this contingent self-worth on how fast they are. And that's a really dangerous place to put your self-worth because like you said, not every single uh, training ride or run or whatever is going to be a fast one. And most of them won't be. And then as you age, you're not going to be as fast as you were uh, at a certain point. So putting Putting your self-worth on how fast you are is a really dangerous thing to do. It is. It's hard to avoid. I've trained for the last several years here in Sedona, Arizona, with a, a group of road cyclists. And they're all like 20 to 30 years younger than me. <laughs> and um, I used to be able, when I first got here, this is like five years ago, I was able to hang on. There were very, very hard workouts for me. They weren't working nearly as hard as I was. But they're very hard workouts for me, but I, that's okay because I do two hard workouts a week. So it was always one of my two hard workouts every week was to ride with these guys. Then it finally got to the point, this this is only about two years ago, that I really could not stay with them anymore on the climbs. They were they were dropping me on the climbs and they had to wait for me at the top. And that became embarrassing to be yeah. having a group of riders waiting for me at the top of every climb. And, and you've been to Sedona, it's extremely hilly here. You, there's nothing flat. And so I had to make a decision. The first decision I made was to quit riding with them because I was just I didn't like holding them back. Uh, I couldn't do anything about it. You know, I couldn't improve my fitness. It's just what happens to you as you get older. To ride with when I ride with those guys, use my e-bike. And lo and behold, that that changed my world. Uh, I could still get a good workout because you don't have to have a thing in the highest setting all the time. You can change the settings. But now I could get just enough help from the e from the motor that I could stay with the group on a climb. 
And that that changed my entire perspective that I that they weren't going to drop me anymore. I was going to stay with them, but which was okay. Some people are embarrassed by riding an e-bike, but I see it just as part of my life at this point in time. It's just the way it is. But there's some situations where riding an e-bike is okay. Do I do it every day? No, I don't. I do it at times where I want to get a, a workout in and I don't want to have to force myself to my limits. So it works out really well. And I've encouraged other people to do that. I noticed one time a few years ago that in the Tour de France, uh, one of the teams, I forgot which one it was now, that was sponsored by a, a bike company uh, on the recovery day, both recovery days for the rest of that year, they uh, they had e-bikes brought in and they rode e-bikes on their recovery days. And it struck me at the time as, wow, this is unique. These are the best riders in the world and they're riding e-bikes. And so it kind of took some of the, the negative connotations of riding an e-bike out of the picture for me and it made it easier for me when i decided that was my way of riding with that group and that's going forward i can stay with them now until i'm maybe 90 years old i can still be riding with that group and it'll still be fun but that's that's the way one way of dealing with problems there are probably other ways you can deal with other problems but that's the way i solved that problem yeah, well, good for you. And I think that it is important to talk about e-bikes and we don't have time today to go into it, but I think that there is a lot of practical and beneficial applications of e-bikes and people can demonize them or people can feel like almost sometimes people apologize if they pass me on their e-mountain bike and I, I don't care. Like that that doesn't impact me in any way. Like I'm happy they're out there riding. And this brings up number four that you talked about when we first started, sociability sociability and being able to still be part of the group because that is such a huge part of our well-being and our longevity. Right. I, I agree. It's like the high point of my week and I get to ride with those guys. Right now we're not riding, by the way, because one of the guys has got a has got a, a heart problem, which is hereditary. He's got a great diet. He's a great athlete. He won the national championship several years ago, but he's now dealing with a with a heart problem that he He's waiting to have the doctors figure out how to help it. So in the meantime, we decide not to ride anymore because we don't want to expel him from our group. So when he finally gets things taken care of, which may be in a couple more months yet, I hope he gets it fixed up. We'll go back to riding together again. But right now, we're all like all supporting him and his and mm. his unique situation. Mm. Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I actually did not mention this on air, which I, I meant to, is that back in, I don't even know what year it was, 2004 maybe, or 2003 when I was first getting into cycling. The Cyclist Training Bible was the very first book that I bought. And it's what taught me about endurance training because I didn't know anything about it. And I was running marathons before that and also didn't know anything about endurance training. So it was really helpful to find that book. And I'm so grateful for that to help me become an informed athlete. And all the work that you're doing out there in the world is making such a huge difference and the example and leadership that you're setting for other people. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sonia. Very, very kind of you to say those things. And thank you for having me um, on your podcast also. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I'm so excited about the podcast and the future guests that we have coming on and the future evolution and vision that I have of this podcast after I'm done with grad school. So there's your cliffhanger. Thank you so much for listening. I know you have so many podcasts to choose from and it means the world to me that we get to connect in this audio format. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.